Our topic for tonight, the first in our series of 27 lectures, is entitled People of the Image, How Jews Made Art in Spite of the Second Commandment and Why It Matters. Um, I don't know, should I introduce you fully? Yeah, I'll do briefly, a little bit, briefly. briefly. Let me tell you why Mark is here. Uh, if you were at Lee Mood last year, raise your hand. Okay, a bunch of many people from Orange County. We were all at Lee Mood last year. I'm not going to tell you. It's a learning festival from L.A. that was in Orange County. Mark was one of the featured speakers. I walked in the door and I ran to someone I met and I said, well, Shmuley Botev is going to be here and there's some other big speakers. Who should I hear? And the, and the person said, well, everyone says go hear Mark Michael Epstein. And I was not going to go hear him, but I said, fine. So I went to hear him and I ended up going to all of his lectures. And I said, I met Mark and we became quick friends. And I said, would you like to come and be our one-month scholar sometime? I had someone lined up. Unfortunately, the person I had lined up, um, there was an illness, and I called Mark, and Mark took the opportunity, and um, that's why he's here, because we went to Limud, everyone enjoyed him, so I think, I, I know you will as well. And I will also tell you a little bit about Mark. He is the product of a mixed marriage between the science of Slonimer and Lubavitch, Lubavitch or Hasidim and Romanian socialists, and grew up rather confused but happy in Brooklyn. We'll be learning more about his background on Sunday. He's currently professor of religion at Vassar College, so if you have any children or grandchildren that are looking at college, uh, please um, ask Mark about Vassar. He's been teaching there since 1992, and he was the first director of Jewish studies. He teaches courses on medieval Christianity, religion, arts, and politics, and Jewish texts and sources. He's a graduate of Oberlin College, received a PhD from Yale University, and did much of his graduate research at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He's written numerous articles and three books. We have one of his books here. And there's a lot else to say, and I will not say it. With that, I welcome you officially to Orange County. Thank you, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Can we have the lights, please, down? Is that possible? How do we? Yes. Okay. I wanted to thank uh, Ari and uh, Marianne Malkoff and her husband Mel and Gail um, Wilner and, uh, and Nira and everybody who's been so hospitable so far, everybody on the board, numerous hosts and sponsors and um, to Agi for coming and, and uh, making everything possible. My talk this evening is titled People of the Image, How Jews Made Art in Spite of the Second Commandment and Why It Matters. There have been about, oh, I'd say 3,000 years of the making of art on the part of Jews. But I feel a certain trepidation in talking to you about that on two counts, right? First of all, attempting to tell about 3,000 years of anything in about an hour is a daunting task. It's, uh, it's like a tour of, um, of uh, 22 countries and 67 cities, Ari. Uh, that was Ari's uh, early tour in four days. It's, it's not only logistically problematic, but it's possibly hazardous to one's health. Secondly, I don't feel comfortable talking about art because who's to judge what it is? I mean, Due to variations in taste and judgment, one can have art that is not aesthetic at all, such as this kitschy Hanukkah jam-packed with every Jewish symbol one can think of. Jerusalem, right? Doves, and dancing Hasidim, right? All for one not particularly low uh, price. So that's, that's, that's art that, in my opinion, is unaesthetic. And one can have everyday objects, examples of what scholars call material culture that are extremely aesthetic, 
like this little 15th century silver nieto cofretto, a box made for an Italian Jewish woman designed to hold her household keys and featuring three special commandments incumbent upon women, taking challah from the dough, immersing in the mikveh, and kindling the Sabbath lights. And the immersing female nude, for instance, is centrally displayed here, right? It's a beautiful little tiny thing. It's about four inches long, right? Now this is an everyday object that is actually art. So I would prefer not to discuss art, but visual culture this evening. That is the whole gamut of materials that can be experienced visually made by and for Jews for use in Jewish ritual and religious life. And rather than cover the entire range of 3,000 years, I'd like to make some general observations about the relationships between Jews and visuality throughout history. Let me start by pointing out that Ari, always the innovator, is characteristically brave to bring me here. Jews are the people of the book, right? So it would be natural to bring a scholar of texts to be your month-long scholar. And Ari has brought many excellent ones. But a scholar of images sounds a little dicey, especially since Jews have always had a somewhat ambivalent relationship with art. Just about every book on the subject of Jewish art starts out by making sure we understand that the second commandment allegedly prohibits the production of visual art, which is why this photo <laughs> of a Hasidic family in the modern art gallery of the Tel Aviv Museum gives us a bit of pause. Now, I, I'm presuming this occurred on Cholamoyed, the intermediate days of a festival, Pesach, Passover, or Shavuos. Uh, I mean, Shavuos doesn't have a Cholamoyed or Sukkot, right? Pesach or Sukkot because of the streimel worn by the paterfamilias. I think that's the only time the word streimel and paterfamilias have been used in the same sense. The, the fuzzy hat worn by the head of the family. On other occasions, time spent looking at art might be viewed as bitl Torah, right? A waste of the opportunity to learn Torah. So art is apparently problematic. And making art? Oof. Decidedly not a profession for a nice Jewish boy or girl. I mean, name me a Jewish artist be between Bitzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Chur, of the tribe of Yehuda, in the book of Shmos, the book of Exodus, and Marc Chagall of Vitebsk in Paris. How many can you name between those two? The commandment, which allegedly prohibits the creation of art, and makes it impossible for Jews to be artists is, of course, the second commandment. And that's, you know, what all the books start with, right? How can Jews make art in spite of the second commandment? Let's look at the second commandment more closely. The problem with commandments, I find, is that people always think that they know what they say, right? But, of course, you know, when you read them, you find out that they say something dramatically different often and sometimes diametrically opposed to what you think they say. So let's look at it more closely. Believing the Torah text to be a love letter from God to them, Jews naturally scrutinize what it says very closely. God says in Exodus, right? I, I'm sorry, God says in Leviticus, I'm not, this is not this text, in Leviticus 
chapter 18, verse 5, God says, You shall keep my laws and my rules by pursuit of which humans shall live. By pursuit of which humans shall live. And the Talmud elaborates by saying you should live by them and not die by them. So Jews sought to find in commandments the exact parameters of what is permitted and what is forbidden in order to earn the blessing and not the curse of God. So collectively, over the centuries, the upshot of the ways in which they read the second commandment, which says, you shall not make for yourself a three-dimensional image nor any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is on the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. The way collectively and over the centuries Jews read this commandment was as follows. You shall not make for yourself. This does not exclude your making for others or others making for you. A three-dimensional image, this does not exclude two-dimensional images, and you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. This is the modifying clause in all the cases affecting only the Jewish use of images but not the ways in which they're used by non-Jews. So you giggled, some of you giggled, because you're thinking, oh, clever Jews trying to get around the commandment. But that's only because you think the commandment prohibits the creation of images. It does not. It prohibits the creation of images on a very limited scale and only images intended for worship. So you shall not make, but if others have made it, you may own even a work of art originally intended for worship, like this Nigerian thunder god in the collection of Mrs. Goldie Steinberg of West Hempstead, <laughs> Long Island. I just made, all the names have been made up, okay? <laughs> you shall not make for yourself, but you may make for others, provided they are not Jews, even a work of art that non-Jews will use for worship, like this lovely... I don't know how lovely it is. Madonna and Child, made by Moshe Cohen, uh, donated to Our Lady of Perpetual uh, Mercy Cathedral in Hackensack. I just like the name Hackensack, New Jersey, right? Okay, there you go. Right? So you made it for someone else. And you may own any two-dimensional work. You can't make, I'm sorry, you, can, you can't make any three-dimensional work, but you may own any two-dimensional work of art, even a work of art originally intended for worship, and you may create two-dimensional works for non-Jews, even if they use them for worship. So here's the angel Jibril from the collection of Rabbi Lori Weiss. I picked a, a unisex name, you know, so, that, so you, however you like your rabbis, male or female, you can have them, right? Um, of Cincinnati, Ohio, right? So the upshot is you may own a three-dimensional object, even one intended for worship by non-Jews, as long as it was made by somebody else. You may create a three-dimensional object, even one intended for worship, as long as it is worshipped by a non-Jew. And you may own or create any two-dimensional object, regardless of how it was or will be used by non-Jews. So Jews did create monuments of visual culture, and they did so with enthusiasm throughout the ages. We have no verifiable artifacts from Solomon's temple, the first temple, destroyed 586 before the Common Era. But the second Jerusalem temple, 
begun in 535 before the Common Era and dedicated in 515, was extensively renovated, actually rebuilt by Herod the Great around 19 of the Common Era. And we have both fairly corroborable accounts of its appearance, both in the Mishnah and in Josephus, and actual fragments of its architecture. I don't know if you've ever been, I'm sure many of you have been to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Hold up your hands if you've been to the Israel Museum. Okay, wow. Okay, you're a knowledgeable crowd. How many of you have been to the Hecht Museum in the University of Haifa? How many? Maybe, okay, three, four, right? The Hecht Museum in the University of Haifa has all these incredible artifacts that were taken out of the Temple Mount so that there you can see these fragments of carvings of the interior of the gates of the Second Temple, which include floral motifs, and yes, those are swastikas, designed elements and symbols of power in many cultures, including that of the Israelites, before their co-optation and debasement by the Nazi regime. But we don't only have architectural design elements from the ancient period. There is representational and narrative art, always in two dimensions, which has also survived. Here's a panel from the ancient synagogue discovered at Dura Europis, Syria, in 1932 by a Yale University expedition. The last phase of its construction was dated by an Aramaic inscription to the year 244 of the Common Era, making it one of the oldest synagogues in the world. It remains unique among the many ancient synagogues that have emerged from archaeological digs in that it was preserved virtually intact and for its extensive figural paintings. Here you have the finding of Moses and this uh, nude female figure. Actually, you know, if you want to trace motifs in Jewish art, you know, the obvious ones, menorahs, right? And then less obvious ones, ones you don't think about necessarily, um, uh, the female nude, right? Uh, and I'll be t giving a talk on the Jewish body in art so we can uh, discuss. But this figure is either a personification of the River Nile or the Pharaoh's daughter or the divine presence sheltering Moses as the goddesses sheltered the children of the gods in antiquity. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. What does this say about the community right, that produced this art? What was their theology? What was their practice? We don't know much. The ancient synagogue of Beit Alpha is located in the Beit She'an Valley in the northeast of Israel. The mosaic floor of the synagogue was discovered in 1929 when members of Kibbutz Beit Alpha dug irrigation channels for their fields. Excavations were carried out the same year, exposing mosaics preserved intact for almost 1,500 years. And later excavations in the early 1960s exposed remains of some houses, um, which indicated that the synagogue in which these mosaics were found stood in a Jewish village of the Byzantine period of the 5th to six centuries, and here you have Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac, in a, in a, oh, sorry, in a fascinating um, uh, example of which much can be said, but I won't say today. It's this sort of representational art and narrative art that makes its way into the Middle Ages. Here we have the finding of Moses in Dur Europis, 244, and the finding of Moses, note again the female nudes, three of them this time, in the Golden Haggadah, Barcelona, 1320. This type of narrative 
representational art finds its way into the Middle Ages. The lively engagement evinced by Jews in late antiquity with the visual seems to have fallen somewhat dormant during the seventh century, perhaps due to the dominance of Islam in the regions in which the majority of Jews dwelt at that time, and Islamic culture then and there was aniconic. It refused the image. There were, by the way, many Islamic cultures that accepted the image, even the image of the Prophet Muhammad, but that's uh, another discussion. During the early 13th century, by which time Jewish settlement had spread throughout Christendom, Jews both in Sfarad and Ashkenaz developed a renewed interest in narrative painting. At the same time, the Christian narrative art emerges from being strictly the province of monasteries and into urban workshops. By the early 14th century, the rebirth of a narrative figurative art in Jewish culture reach its most articulated development. A whole range of symbols was developed, some imported from antiquity, and others developed via rabbinic and medieval texts, which found their way into the decoration of synagogues in the 17th and 18th century. All these motifs, the zodiac signs, come from antiquity, Jewish antiquity, where they represented the glory of God in the universe, unicorns and lions, right? Various animal motifs. 17th to 18th century synagogue decoration in Poland and what is now Ukraine, and into ritual objects. The 19th century saw a rise in painting with Jewish themes, some of it kitschy and genre-esque, other examples, very sophisticated, such as this Gottlieb. It's a painting by Maurizio Gottlieb in the late 19th century, in which he uses traditional settings to tell a particular and very modern story. So you look at this painting. You might have seen it. It's in the Tel Aviv uh, Museum Gallery of Art, and it's a very large painting. And it's very nostalgic and very sweet and tender. And maybe you've seen it in reproductions in, in people's homes. And it, 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 it generally is thought of to be sort of the the high point of narrative, religious, genre painting in the 19th century. Well, it's nothing of the sort, actually. It depicts the synagogue and the eve of Yom Kippur, but there's something strange. This gentleman here is wearing a kittel, the traditional white robe worn by Jewish males of married age in the synagogue uh, in Ashkenaz, but you notice that the kittel is striped. You see that? Unusual. Does the coat of any, many colors recall anything to you? The image of Joseph. Well, this is the artist, Maritzi Gottlieb, who wanted to marry this woman, but was prevented by, from marrying her by her sister, who spoke to the mother and said that he was inappropriate because he was an artist, and a nice Jewish boy shouldn't be an artist. And so he paints himself here as Joseph betrayed by his brothers, and this rabbi with downcast blind eyes carries a Sefer Torah, Torah scroll, on which is inscribed to the memory of Moritzi Gottlieb, to the memory of the artist, because he's dead to the Jews. You see? So you look at this and you say, oh, it's so nice, Eastern Europe, the shul, it brings tears to my eyes. I hear Kol Nidre. Well, that's not what's going on here, right? This is something, as Monty Python used to say, completely different. <laughs> And the 20th century saw the rise of more and more Jewish artists as the effects of emancipation were felt. But the entry of Jews into mainstream artistic production raises some very interesting questions. Since Modiani was a Jewish artist, is a nude by Modiani a Jewish nude, right? 
And then there's Chagall, right? When Chagall paints goats and Torah scrolls, he's clearly a Jewish artist. But what about his lovers, my favorites, right? His later flower paintings, Jewish, not Jewish. His Jesus, here, one might argue, he is most Jewish of all. We could talk a lot about the ancient and modern periods, and over the course of my residency here in Orange County, we will. But I want to do something more challenging this evening, because you're a big crowd, and you probably haven't been exposed to what I want to expose you to. I want to talk about Jewish visual culture in a period that makes most people fall asleep. The Middle Ages, okay? The objects that I love and study most, the magnificent illuminated manuscripts of the medieval era are harder to talk about than Chagall. Because Chagall, you know, you point to the rabbi, you point to the Torah, you point to the goat, there, right? Easy, right? Um, but, but these objects that I want to talk to you about tonight are far richer and ultimately, I believe, more interesting. But they're as rare as unicorns, these medieval Jewish illuminated manuscripts. Why? Well, if I told you it had to do with ox carts, you would look at, like you, sir, you would look at me like I was crazy, okay? But bear with me, right? Anybody here ever seen an ox? Raise your hand if you saw an ox. Okay, so you know, maybe you were raised on a farm, maybe you saw an ox. An ox is a gesunte behema, right? It's a, it's a, right? It's a healthy, it's a big animal, right? Um, in June 1242, ox cart loads of books totaling thousands of volumes in an age before printing, 1242, were publicly burnt at the Place d'Hôtel de Ville in Paris by King, or sometimes Saint, if you're Catholic, Louis IX. Okay? So imagine this. An ox cart, can you hear me? An ox cart is a large, large vehicle. It's pulled by between six and eight oxen who are this tall at the shoulder. So the apparatus of an ox cart would stretch from here to that wall, and the wheels were larger than a man, even a midget like myself, okay? Right? So an ox cart would go up to the ceiling, and all the books, all the books, I have to stand with the microphone because I'm being recorded, thank you. An ox cart would go up to the ceiling and all the books of the Jews of the Ile de France were piled into these ox carts. They weren't typed tamped down nicely. Can you imagine how many books were lost in what's called the burning of the Talmud? Only a tiny fragment remains. It's a problem. It's a problem then to talk about medieval Jewish art simply because we don't have much of it. There's another problem though. And this is, you know, this is the bigger problem as far as I'm concerned. The problem is that what we have left from Jews in the Middle Ages looks very much like the art of the surrounding culture. Right? An angel, for instance, in a South Jewish illumination of the 14th century may look no different than an angel in a Christian work of art from the same period, down to the Christian liturgical robes that the angels, both angels are wearing. Right? How does this angel get to look like a Christian angel? It's just that this was the convention for painting angels. Just like if I asked you to draw the sun. If I asked you to draw the sun, what would you do? You'd make a circle, right? Uh, and you'd make rays coming out, lines, maybe little triangles. Maybe if you were clever, you'd put an eyes, nose, and mouth. Is that what the sun looks like? 
No, the sun is a fiery ball of gas, but you wouldn't draw a fiery ball of gas, right? So we have conventions for what things are. So an angel is an angel. That's an angel in Jewish art and Christian art, right? While we're on angels, an angel in a Judeo-Persian illumination here um, in the 18th century, you can see the Judeo-Persian writing here, looks very similar to an angel in Persian Muslim illumination from around the same date. It's a problem. You know, what's Jewish, right? An anatomical, astronomical figure in a medical text in England in the 14th century, these are um, days on which blood could be drawn. That's how you treated people in those days, by drawing blood. And there's a sort of, there's a, there's a convention for this. This is an English, non-Jewish, 14th century manuscript. And it's not distinguished in any way from a similar figure in an Italian Jewish manuscript of roughly the same period, except for the fact that the inscriptions are in Hebrew and they're slightly longer, and the latter figure, you should excuse me, is depicted as circumcised, right? <laughs> So my contention is just because Jewish art looks like the art of surrounding culture, it should not be assumed to mean the same thing. If Congress were to commission a mural depicting an eagle I don't know if they had any money for this anymore, but uh, Miro depicting an eagle and an American flag to hang on the rotunda of the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and a bunch of kids were to paint an eagle and an American flag on the wall of an abandoned building in South Central L.A., only the terminally dim among us would argue that both eagles and American flags mean the same thing. Both eagles coming from different places in the wider American culture would make symbolic reference to the concept of America. But the one in the capital might represent America in its, I don't know, its idealized glory, while the one in the barrio might be a commentary on the dream of America deferred, or anger over the perceived failures of America, or hope for a more universal realization of the American ideal. So when you see an image in a majority culture and in a minority culture, and it's a similar image, you can't possibly think that they could mean the same thing. Because the Orange County Community Scholar Program is such a unique enterprise, because it pushes the envelope, and because it innovates, and because I'm so honored to be a part of it, this evening I want to do something slightly different from the typical illustrated lecture on Jewish art. I don't want to show you a slide of a spice box and explain that it was used in the Havdalah ceremony ending the Sabbath, and this is an example from, uh, where is it, from Warsaw in the early 20th century. I'm not going to do that. Okay? I don't even want to show you details of medieval Jewish illuminated manuscripts and demonstrate how this one illustrates this midrash, and that one is a depiction of another midrash, and, you know, and, and, and uh, forget about it. I'm not doing that, okay? Okay. My argument is that art cannot only beautify rituals or illustrate texts, but it can become a readable text in and of itself. Now, you may not know much about art, but you know what you like, right? <laughs> Being Jews, you might like texts. Well, I'm here to tell you that art is a text. And if you can read a text with letters in it, you can read a text with images in it in a Jewish way. But in order to understand how radical this argument that I'm making is, I have to take you on a brief tour of what scholars have seen as the connection between art 
and interpretation since they started thinking about these things in the late 19th and early 20th century. The early assumption was that art should literally illustrate scripture. The Jews, after all, were very literal. We have art. It must literally illustrate scripture. Witness this illustration of the plague of frogs in the so-called Golden Haggadah, created in Catalonia, possibly Barcelona or Barcelona, around 1320. Here we certainly see the text clearly and literally illustrated, right? Um, the figure here shown in blue is Aaron, who is distinguished um, throughout the manuscript from Moses by his dress and his coiffure. He strikes the river with his rod, and the frogs emerge, filling, as we will later learn from the text, the homes of the Egyptians, invading their kitchens, colonizing their baking and cooking implements. We understand everything. Very, very literal. We've done it, right? Early on in the history of the investigation of Jewish visual culture, some scholars made more nuanced observations, including one that says, while art can literally illustrate scripture, art can also illustrate midrash or commentary. As we saw in that example that I passed over of the children of Israel encamped b'tachtit hahar underneath the mountain. And Rashi says, kafa aleim har God turned the mountain over on the Israelites like a barrel and said, if you accept the Torah, well and good, but if not, this will be your grave. And so in this illumination, medieval illumination, from Germany, 1300s, we see the children of Israel literally inside or underneath a cave. See the rock encampment in, in, in uh, what are those called? Uh, uh, escarpments, right? Uh, of the cave. So this is art that illustrates Midrash, okay? Illustrates rabbinic elaborations. So let's return to the plague of frogs in the Golden Haggadah. The wording of the verse here is somewhat strange. The word frogs is written in the singular. Vata'al hatsifardea, the frog came up and covered the land of Egypt. Rashi explains this as a grammatical feature of the text. He says the frog is similar, a singular, right? Um, contextually, um, one must say a, that a swarm of frogs is described with the singular, right? Um, uh, and, he, and he goes on and says, as in the vernacular. What he means is that in Hebrew, the word frog, sephardea, usually refers to a single frog. It's plural being sephardeim, frogs. But the word sephardea can more unusually appear as a collective noun for a swarm of frogs, much, much like our word fish. What's the plural of fish? Fish? Well, properly, properly, it's fishes. Although in common parlance, the singular fish, you are correct, can stand for a single animal or a school. Similarly, the biblical text reads, the frog came up, using the singular sephardea to indicate a swarm of frogs in plural. But Rashi also quotes a midrash a rabbinic elaboration in Shmos Rabbah, which in order to reconcile the grammar and to amplify the miracle, 
reports that a giant, monstrous frog emerged from the Nile, waddled up to Pharaoh, and disgorged the entire plague of frogs. The Midrash, of course, captures the visual imagination, and thus, according to the Midrash, is the scene depicted. We see a large frog emerging from the Nile and disgorging a horde of smaller frogs. This is an illustrated midrash of the type I said that I would not talk about. <laughs> but the image is also a testimony to that further level of commentary that confirms my argument, which is, as you will remember, that art itself can become midrash or commentary. It doesn't have to simply illustrate midrash or commentary. For th in this image, we see an initiative taken on the part of what I call the authorship of the manuscript, that constellation of people who work together to create the manuscript, the patrons who ordered it, their rabbinic advisors, and the artists, Jewish or non-Jewish, it matters little since they were working under very close supervision of the patrons. <laughs> this initiative taken by the authorship to transcend both the scriptural text and the Midrash, and to add a little special something of their own, moves this illustration from one that simply illustrates Midrash to one that itself becomes commentary. And what, in our case, is that little special something? Well, to give credit where credit is due, I once presented this image to a large audience at some very fancy venue. I think it was the Jewish Museum in New York. And I was just pointing out how the big frog was disgorging all the smaller frogs when my then eight-year-old daughter, Chevy, raised her hand and announced to the august assembly that she noticed that Aaron was striking the big frog's head and that the big frog was, in fact, excreting all the smaller frogs from its posterior. You see that? This was an observation offered in language a little more blunt and considerably more embarrassing that it took an eight-year-old to make, but it is, in fact, correct, and it demonstrates the playfulness of the authorship in highlighting the repulsiveness of the plague in spite of the courtly air of dignity in the rendering of the illumination, right? If frogs are gross, there's nothing more gross than tushy frogs. <laughs> the authorship thus goes beyond scripture and beyond, am I the first um, scholar to mention tushy frogs? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The authorship goes, Excuse me? Not laser worms. Not laser worms. The authorship goes beyond scripture and beyond midrash to inscribe something of itself, here a distinctly scatological something, into the illumination. Now the image we've been interpreting thus far is from a Haggadah, a particular Haggadah with which we will become much more intimately acquainted as we proceed. After all, what better book is there to seek visual commentary than the Passover Haggadah? Can one, after all, conceive of a ritual moment more central to the Jewish experience as a whole than the Seder experience? Can one conceive of the Seder without the Haggadah? And although they tend to be taken for granted, can one conceive of the Haggadah without the illustrations that accompany it? 
The illustrations, of course, are born of a mandate to, quote, expand upon the recounting of the Exodus. A beautiful book with engaging, even mysterious illustrations can enhance the experience of putting oneself in the very shoes of those who hastily traversed the borders of the land of Egypt on that night of the Exodus, fleeing the bondage of Egypt's pharaoh for the service of Sinai's God. Small wonder, though, then, that the colophon, the signature of an illuminated Haggadah created by Abraham of Irgen in Germany in 1732, paraphrases the Haggadah's mandate, asserting that everyone who expands upon the scribal illumination and the illustration of the exodus from uh, Egypt is indeed both praiseworthy and superb. Right? So the Haggadah says, right? Everyone who multiplies the telling of the Exodus from Egypt, behold, this is praiseworthy. And Avram of Irigan says, Everyone who expands upon the decoration and the drawing with pictures of the Exodus from Egypt, this is praiseworthy and superb. You know, once we agree that art itself can become commentary, we have to consider that each manuscript was created under a unique constellation of social, uh, intellectual, cultural, religious circumstances, and thus, we might be able, under close examination, to reveal various concerns of the authorship. These people died a long time ago. What was that movie? Was you know he talks to dead people? You remember that, right? You know, right? So we can talk to dead people. We can talk to people in 1320. If we look at their art, their art reveals all kinds of particular circumstances. They can be theological circumstances, right? The relationship of the people who made the manuscript with ideas about God. They can be exegetical, the relationship with scripture. They can be sociological, the relationship with others inside and outside their particular community. And they can also be polemic, that is, revealing their negative or adversarial feelings with others, both inside and outside their particular communities. But there's also another less, uh, level, which is much more elusive and much more difficult to determine. It's the level of the personal. I don't know if you've commissioned art. I never have. I'm not, you know, I'm an academic. I'm not in a position to do that. But if you've commissioned art, you know that any expensive, unique, personalized, commissioned work of art is obviously emerges in response to quite particular, personal, intimate circumstance of those who commissions it immediate environment. Unfortunately, most of the manuscripts that I examine are orphans, meaning that I have little or no information about where and when they were made besides their general style, and even less and usually no information about for whom they were made. Yet these manuscripts are so intriguing, so mysterious that I refuse to go to my grave without saying something about what I observe when I examine the internal evidence of these wonderful books. My proposal with you this evening is to take just that plunge and say what I think of these enigmatic 
manuscripts and tried to answer the most enigmatic question of all. Who made them? Who were they made for? Why were they made? But what makes me think that it's even okay to ask these kinds of intimate questions, assuming I could ever answer them? Well, on Seder night, we have an obligation to view ourselves as if we had personally come out of Egypt. And Jews did so graphically in their illustrated Haggadot, putting themselves into the picture, making the persons and places of the Haggadah's narrative their own. Though the Mishnaic words themselves, in each and every generation, one is required to see oneself as if she or he had personally come out of Egypt, these are eloquent exposition of the commandment of engaged memory. It was this wonderful illustration by the artist Davis, David Moss that started me years ago on my quest to discover what it might mean in the context of visual culture. Excuse me. The right side of this open two-page spread by folium of this Haggadah features a series of highly individualized heads in roundels, those of Jewish men, young and old, Eastern and Western, from every conceivable time period and every historical manner of dress. These images were adopted from a variety of monuments of Jewish visual culture, both familiar and obscure. Each roundel is flanked by others, these are not decorated with images, but inlaid with tiny mylar mirrors. The left-hand page is similarly constructed, but here are portraits of women. The roundels with the portrait heads and the mirrors alternate in a reverse pattern on opposite folios, so that as one opens the book, the figures in the on each side of the page, quote-unquote, regard themselves. Remember, the commandment is to see yourself as if you came out of Egypt. See themselves in the mirror, and the user of the Haggadah, peering down, I get chills when I think of this, right? Peering down at the open page, sees her or his own face reflected in the hole. Now, those pages, these pages, struck me as a powerful metaphor for the function of visual culture as a mirror into which Jews might project themselves and in which they might see themselves as actors in history, both presenting themselves via visuality, visuality and understanding themselves in its reflection. Each and every Haggadah, then, is a mirror in which the authorship sees itself. Each Haggadah is, in its own way, my very own Haggadah. <laughs> but I want to go deeper even deeper, and approach things on a more intimate level in the case of a particular aspect of the manuscript that you've seen, remember the farting frogs, called the Golden Haggadah. This slim, leather-bound volume in the British Museum's collection is externally among the least impressive of the lot. It's only about this high I was holding in my hands last week. Additional manuscript 27210, better known as the Golden Haggadah, was made in Barcelona around 1320. When one opens this small book, one can see why it has earned its name, for it is the opulence of the shining golden backgrounds of the illuminations, which is most breathtaking when one first encounters the manuscript. The eye is suddenly and dramatically swept
swept across pages whose richness of color and delicacy of design exemplify the very best and brightest products of the medieval illuminator's workshop. In this exquisite work, the text of the Haggadah is prefaced by a cycle of eight folios of illuminations depicting events from the book of Genesis, and Exodus. Now, much of the scholarly attention focused on this manuscript accrues to it by virtue of its high style. In fact, the Golden Haggadah has often received the great compliment of being described as devoid of all but the most superficial distinctive elements marking it as intended for a Jewish audience. Funny, in other words, you don't look Jewish, right? Part of my detective work in the book has been to demonstrate the inherent Jewishness of this work in spite of its manifestly non or un-Jewish appearance. It might have been created by Jews or by non-Jews working for Jews, we don't know. But one thing we do know is that this manuscript, which was very expensive, was created by whomever created it, Jew or Gentile, under the very strict and direct guidance of Jews, some quite learned. I discuss the ways in which the authorship of this manuscript adopts and adapts motifs from the wider culture, such as Moses' flight into Egypt, which you see there uh, um, on the right, adapted from this image of the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and baby jo I mean, Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus uh, fleeing from Egypt. And I talk about the relationship between Jewish and Christian culture over these kinds of images. And it's all very nice to talk about that sort of stuff. But I'll tell you a secret. Ari, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not really interested in art. I'm really interested in people, Jews specifically. Who were the Jews who commissioned this manuscript? What were their lives like? Why was this manuscript made and for whom? We totally lack any external information about who commissioned this manuscript and for what purpose. No receipts, no commissions, no documents, no corroboration. So no scholar has ventured to say anymore. It's like a gag order, right? We don't know, we don't know so we can't say. But when I look at this manuscript, I see things and I cannot keep silent. So what if I were to go out on a limb beyond the normal bounds of documentary evidence? For the bit of my research I'm about to share with you, Revealing a secret transcript within the manuscript resembles nothing more than it does a detective story in the truest sense. It has all the proper elements for tuitous discovery, a trail of clues, a speculation. True, it lacks real resolution, but hey guys, we're dealing with a case that by any standards, any contemporary standards, is a cold case. In another decade, the protagonists of this manuscript will have been gone for 800 years, right? So let me describe the case to you. In looking over the structure of this manuscript, I began to notice something strange about the iconography. Figures appear within the manuscript whose presence seems on a case-by-case -case basis to be incidental. Yet taken together, they are significant. The golden Haggadah is replete with no less 
than 46 prominent depictions of women. And the biblical sequence culminates with the depiction of seven women in the illustration of the Song of Miriam, and women and girls prominently involved in scenes of Passover preparation. Before me, scholars have placed no particular emphasis on the number of women or their prominence in these depictions. They simply assume that the women depicted in the Golden Haggadah represent unremarkable actors necessarily demanded by the narratives depicted. But do they? The prominence of women in this manuscript extends to their placement in scenes in which they appear. They often appear at the physical center or are the iconographic focus of the composition of the illustration, emphasizing their centrality in the narrative. Here's Pharaoh's daughter with baby Moses, a little off-center, but in the center. Here's Sipora. She's not in the center, but she's the tallest figure. right? And this observation led me to look again at an illumination I'd been aware of for years. You're probably aware of it. It's on every calendar and every greeting card and every, right, every time you want to show Jewish women in the Middle Ages, you show this image. I'd looked at it just like the Second Commandment, right? You know what the Second Commandment is, but then you read it and you find it says something different. I'd looked at this manuscript for ages without really ever seeing it. And it's the dance of Miriam and the daughters of Israel. While most of the figures in this manuscript are two and a quarter inches tall or smaller, I mean the manuscript is small, and most of the figures are less than two and a quarter inches tall, accounting for age, perspective, etc. And while most appear in landscape settings or interior settings, Miriam and the women stand uniformly two and a half inches in height. Now that's proportionally a huge difference from the standard two and a quarter inches in a space that's only three inches high in total. Each of these little squares is only three inches high. So they are thus taller, bigger, closer than any other of the figures in the illuminations. Miriam and the women occupy a spaceless space right up against the picture plane with no residue of landscape, architecture, or history. No sign, for instance, of the carnage on the shores of the Red Sea. Now, in the Sarajevo Haggadah, slightly later, very famous Haggadah, Miriam and the dancing women appear against a blue checkered background. So it's similar. But many other scenes are similarly shown against backgrounds devoid of landscape or architecture. In the Golden Haggadah, this is the only scene that is spaceless, hence contextless, hence timeless, hence eternal. Wrenched from its historical context, it stands as the pivot between the historical events of the Exodus on the opposite page and the scenes that follow it on its page, combining contemporary Passover preparations with a restored Passover sacrifice at the time of the Messiah. It is the only historical event that breaks into the present and the future from history, offering further proof of its significance and its eternity. Now, I thought about all this change in scale and the contextness of the illumination, and I started to wonder, why is Miriam depicted at all? Now, you may have satyrs, as we do, you know, where Miriam the prophetess figures in the satyr, and, you know, we have a cup of Miriam, just like you have a cup of Elijah, but that's all recent, right? 
The fact is that there are plenty of Haggadot, all, almost all the Haggadot of the Middle Ages, that don't include this scene, and they tell the story just as well from a traditional perspective. So this led me to consider the manuscript as a whole. Obviously, women are depicted where they're necessary, part of the narrative, but how about where they seem to be added when the narrative does not necessarily call for their presence? Why represent Noah's wife and daughter-in-law, for instance? Sure, the biblical text mentions them, but why place them in front of Noah's sons, especially when many depictions of this scene in other Haggadot disinclude everybody except Noah? Why place Rachel and Leah in the center of the rarely depicted scene of Jacob's crossing the Yabok River. After all, right, the important part of that scene is Jacob wrestling the angels. Most Haggadah, the angel, sorry, most Haggadah just depict Jacob wrestling the angel. They don't depict these women in the center. Why include a woman in the scene of Jacob's mourning for Joseph when the biblical text specifically absents women from the scene, right? They brought it to their father, right? Jacob wept, their father wept, right? It's all about the brothers and the father. There's no women in this scene. Why add a woman? Right? Why represent the uncommon scenes of the daughters of Yitro or of Sipporah on the donkey, not included in other contemporary Haggadot? Why are women and a baby uncharacteristically included among the laboring Israelites, a feature of no other known medieval Jewish manuscript? Why depict Egyptian women afflicted with lice and combing out their hair with those lice combs that you had to do for your kids when they came home from Israel? Remember that? Okay, right, okay. Or mourning those killed in the plague of the firstborn, among them in a highly unusual instance, barely remarked upon in the scholarship Pharaoh's wife? Who is this chick? Right? It's pretty strange. Why are Israelite women and their children depicted as the first to leave Egypt? Moses is lagging behind with his staff. You see, back here? Right? And the first to cross the Red Sea. And why should the entire series of biblical illuminations culminate with a representation of the song of Miriam and women and girls preparing for Passover. Although we know nothing about the illuminators or the original patrons of the Golden Haggadah, we can say something about the audience. Its earliest ownership inscription is shown here on the title page added in 1602 when it was given as a wedding gift at the wedding of Rosa Gallico and Elia Rava at Carpi in Italy. The title page has been misread by the late Professor Narkis to imply that it was given as a gift from the bridegroom to the bride when, in fact, it was given by the bride to the bridegroom. The dedicatory text actually reads, given as a gift by the honored Mistress Rosa, may she be blessed among the women of the tent, 
daughter of our illustrious honored teacher, Rabbi, Rabbi Yoav Galico, may his rock preserve him, to his, that is Rose's, father-in-law, fa- Rose's father's son-in-law, the honored teacher, Rav Elia, may his rock preserve him, son of the sage, our honored teacher, Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Rava, may he live many good years, on the day of his wedding and the day of the rejoicing of his heart, here at Karpi, the 10th of the month of Cheshvan, in the year Hey Shin Samech Gimel 1602. Given by a woman to a man. Perhaps the manuscript was illuminated for a woman. Would it be, to use the Yiddish word, too far-fetched to imagine (laughs) that it was commissioned for one of Rosa Galico's ancestors and passed down from mother to daughter until the Galico-Rava wedding? Although there is absolutely no documentary evidence for this, we do know that illuminated manuscripts were owned by Jewish women and that the rationale for illustrating such books, Haggadot among them, was often to encourage interest and involvement of women and children in the proceedings of the Seder. Women often figure prominently in the illustrations of such books. That the golden Haggadah is unusually rich in representations of women. And the fact that it was once owned by a woman is undeniable. We have that inscription, and we have the visual evidence. Even if my extrapolation from these facts is wildly flawed and tendentious, making too much of the Golden Haggadah as a manuscript written for a woman, it should also be acknowledged that the misreading of the dedication inscription and the failure to acknowledge the prominence of depictions of women in this manuscript has made far too little of the relationship between its potential provenance and its iconography. So I think it was made for a woman, but shall I go even further? Are you willing to go there with me? Show of hands, okay. Perhaps, and I'm really out on a limb here, the manuscript was illuminated for a woman who had lost a child. The iconographic evocations of both the loss of children and references to fertility are too many to be coincidental. There are nine distinct representations of women with children, but one notes in addition to and among them various references to Khalila, God forbid, the loss of children. The woman who is shown in the scene of Jacob's mourning of Joseph is Rachel. She's depicted here against the biblical text since Rachel died in childbirth with Joseph. The authorship of this illustration has deliberately resurrected her here and shows her mourning the loss of Joseph along with Jacob, counter-scripturally against the biblical text, felt so strongly about showing a woman mourning the loss of the child that they resurrected Joseph. There is, of course, the well-known episode of Pharaoh casting the male Israelite newborns into the Nile. But although well-known to the readers of the Bible and the viewers of the Ten Commandments, right, and the Prince of Egypt, this scene is highly infrequent in Haggadot in the Middle Ages, in spite of its dramatic possibilities. Loss of children. A woman is depicted among the slaving Israelites. This is highly unusual in and of itself, but coupled with the fact that she holds a baby directly above the mold for making bricks, it seems intended to evoke a specific midrash. Chapter 49 of Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, 
relates how the Israelites refused straw for building by Pharaoh, had to gather stubble in the wilderness and tread clay into it. The coarse stubble pierced their heels, mingling their blood with the clay. Even Rachel bat Shutelach, Rachel, the daughter of Shutelach, of the tribe of Ephraim, although she was in the ninth month of her pregnancy and due imminently to give birth, was forced to tread the clay alongside her husband. Tragically, her exertions brought about labor, and when the infant emerged from its mother's womb, it fell into the mixture in the brick mold and was engulfed by it. At that moment, the angel Michael descended, took that brick mold and brought it up before the divine throne. And that very night, the decree of punishment against Egypt was issued, as it says, and I passed over you and saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said to you, in your blood you shall live. In your blood you shall live. The depiction of the plague of the firstborn is acted out exclusively by women, including a dead baby lying pieta-like in its mother's lap, and a crowned female figure intended to represent, I don't know, the queen of Egypt? who comes to replace Paro Hayoshev Akisa, Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, who is explicitly called for in the biblical text. So again, against scripture in order to admit women, right? And you think about the Orthodox and the rabbinate, right? Not admitting women to the rabbinate. Here you have people in 1320 going against the Torah to include women in this depiction. Then there are images of comfort. It is women with babies who lead Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, the Exodus, while Moses and the men lag behind. And it's a woman holding a baby, followed closely by a man with a small child on his shoulders who leads the crossing of the Red Sea. Finally, on the last folio, there's this incredible display of, uh, what could you call it, hyperfertility. Food is being distributed to a woman with seven children. She has six children who are the same height and age. And in this, her fertility mirrors that of the Israelite women in Egypt who had six children at each birth. Did you know that? Right? Well, the Bible tells us, B'nai Yisrael, Paru, Rivu, V'yishutsu, V'yatsmu, B'me'od, Me'od. Six different adjectives to describe the increase of the children of Israel. The rabbis ask the question, no, the Bible is printed on toilet paper, right? You have a Bible, you know, it's printed on this very thin paper, right? Why, why waste, why include six different adjectives? They just should have said the children of Israel multiplied, right? But they said they increased and they multiplied and they grew and uh, what are they, right? They became many, they grew mighty in number, exceedingly, exceedingly, six different adjectives. This means that every live birth in Egypt was the birth of six children, okay? Whatever you think about that. You have a woman with six children, but she's also holding a baby, thus exceeding in fecundity even the hyper-fertile Israelite women. To me, this image represents a sort of visual prayer on the part of the patron for recovery and reinvigoration after what may have been a profound loss for her. Now, folks, can I say with certainty that 
This manuscript was made for a Catalan Jewish woman of around 1320 who had lost a child. <laughs> of course not. Can I say it was made for a Catalan Jewish woman? Ah, now my speculation doesn't seem as far-fetched as it did. But you know, as much as I would like to say that, I can't even say that with any certainty. But when I have observations like this to make, when there are 46 women hitherto unrecognized and unacknowledged in both their pain and in their joy, calling out to me from the pages of this magnificent book, I simply cannot be silent in the face of conclusive external proof. Right? I want to share with you what I think they are trying to say to us. This is Jewish art. It's not just about decorating the ceremonies and illustrating scripture. It's about the very personal, the very intimate, the very special and individual experiences of Jews, people like you and me, over the centuries. And if I've intrigued you to learn more, to look more, to think more about the fact that when Jews made art, there's always a secret transcript behind everything they do, then I consider my time with you this evening well spent. You know, for years, the history of Jewish art was written by scholars keeping their cards very close to their chests, controlling access to manuscripts in libraries and museums, only showing the public what they want to see. My work, the work I hope to share with you during this month-long scholar-in-residence, bursts this all open. My hope is that the boldness of my speculations and my openness with the materials will urge others, hopefully you yourselves, to add your own voices to the discussion and to be able to glimpse the lives of the people who made these books in history's mirror by grace of art. Thank you very much. Are there questions? There's a, there's a microphone up here. You can either come up or uh, I think we'd prefer you, uh, would we prefer people to come up? How are we doing questions? Questions, commentary, shouts of opprobrium. Say your name, please. Yes. My name is Bert Baum. Hi, Bert Baum. My question is, or comment is, what is the possibility that this artwork was done by a woman? That's also a possibility. Now, now this, is, this, is, this is a very interesting question, Bert. Thank you very much. Um, the question of who made it, I thought you were going to come up with the other question, which is, well, how do we, how, is this Jewish art if it was made by Goyim, right? It was clearly made by non-Jews because it's so high quality, right? The fact is, the fact is, we don't know who made this art, okay? Now, it could have been made by Jews, as I said, or non-Jews working for Jews. The fact is, and I'll say this again and again during this month, so if you are my groupie, you will hear it again. If you ask Frank Gehry... We were, just, we were just in the, the, uh, the concert hall in LA, magnificent, to, to build you a house. You don't say to him, Frank, you're brilliant, right? Paint the house whatever colors you want, put in as many bathrooms as you like. I won't tell you how many kids I have. You just determine how many children's rooms, right? You supervise it very closely because it's really expensive. I'm sorry, I hate to become pecuniary and mercenary, but these are expensive manuscripts. So even if they're made by non-Jews, it doesn't matter. What matters is who commissioned them. Now, what might matter in terms of sensibility might be whether a man or woman created it. I can't say 
that a woman created this manuscript. I don't frankly have that much evidence of women working in this style at this time in this period, but it is, it is as great a possibility as any other possibility. You are bold, Bert, for, to have brought it up, and I applaud you. So I, I couldn't go out on that limb, but you were even more far-fetched than I. Thank you. <laughs> yes, in the back, sir. What's your name? Noah Hadass. Hi, Noah. Yes. Two related questions. Good. Number one, the, your commentary, your understanding, is that based upon Talmudic uh, writings or your, right. your, okay, you already I, No, no, I'll, I'll explain to you what it is. I'm just, I'm assimilating your question. Go ahead. Okay, and number two, uh, I think you said in most cases, uh, as you're explaining it, that the art would be okay for a Jew to make as long as it was for non-Jews, and yet you're showing us Haggadot that were clearly made for... Okay, let me, let me go over it, the ground again. Right. Maybe I wasn't clear. You can make anything in three dimensions as long as it's made for a non-Jew or for yourself not to worship. You can make anything in two dimensions as long as it's not made for worship purposes. So, Lotish Tachavem modifies the rest of the commandment. All biblical scholars agree. My understanding is a, um, I used to say titration, but it's the wrong word, a distillation of Talmudic and rabbinic responsa, what we call halacha lemaisa, right? Practical halacha. And the fact is that there were places and times at which Jews were stricter and more lenient, right? But it's very interesting. Reading these responses is so cool. You know what a responsum is? It's a rabbinic answer to a shayla, to a question. Okay, so let me give you two examples. Uh, I, is anybody bored? You can leave. No. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fine. Um, um, you're all very polite, but um, so 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 let me give you two examples of shalos and chuvas in which there seems to be a halachic, a legal objection, but it's really a political objection. Okay, one is that there were apparently stained glass windows in the synagogue of Cologne in the 1100s, and they were there for centuries until Rabbi Yitzchak or Zarua of Cologne decided and wrote a response that said they must be destroyed immediately, right? And he goes in his response, and he doesn't give that much actual halakha. He just says they have to be destroyed. Why? Because they depict lions and serpents. Voden, what's, you know, what does the subject have to do, right? Think about it. Stained glass windows are one form of art that can be seen from outside a synagogue or a church. You can see the figuration of stained glass windows. If Jews are depicting lions in their art, they are what? The Lion of Judah, sometimes, sometimes. Two lions are symbols of the Torah, but we'll talk about that another time because of the Aramaic word oraita and its relationship to the plural of lions in Aramaic, ariavata. Another question, right? But usually the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is destroying these serpents. Obviously the serpents aren't winning. The lion is trampling the serpents. Maybe the serpents are around. I don't know what the stained glass windows look like. Isaac or Rabbi Yitzhak or Zeruah was afraid that non-Jews in a tense period would look at the synagogue and say, look what the Jews are doing, they're showing themselves destroying their enemies, and who are their enemies except us? So he said, get rid of it, it will cause political problems. But he put it under the rubric of avodah zara, of idolatry, because you know, it's a stronger rubric than that fear of the, of the, of the non-Jews, right? So that's one instance. Another is that there was a synagogue in Ancona in Italy in which a patron 
from the Ariely family wanted to put a lion on top of the ark, which is fine, right? You put lions on arks. You've probably seen lions on arks. They are representative of the Torah, the Lion of Judah. But it was prohibited by the rabbi because he said it could become idolatrous. Now, in Ancon at that time, there were other shuls with lions in them, and nobody had any obje objection. What was his objection? The family was Ariely. It means of the lions. And he thought that these people were showing off Right? We're putting their name, you know, maybe you're used to, you know, the Ira and Sam Gershowitz Ark, right? You know, in your shul, right? But he didn't like this idea. And so, under the rubric of Avodazara, it could be idolatrous, he got rid of this problem. So, very often you'll see people talking about quote unquote idolatry when they're trying to get in the back door with something else political. Excellent, excellent question, though. Thank you. So, uh, this gentleman, yes, your name? Uh, Jeremy Siegel. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, uh, in the image that you had of uh, the woman uh, at the edge of the Red Sea, right? Um, yeah, if you can go back to it, uh, it appears you said that it was them leading the way into the Red Sea. Yes. It looks to me right. like they're at the trailing end of. Oh, I, I misspoke. Well, what I, well, I misspoke is this: that um, that the action in, in well, watch my arrow. Can you see my arrow? Yeah. The action in this Haggadah, moving as it does in the direction of Hebrew, always moves from right to left. Right? So first you have the Egyptians drowning and being eaten by the fishes. They're sleeping with the fishes. You see here? Okay? Then you have Moses saying, bye-bye, see you suckers. Right? Then in front you have the women. So that's the front. I should have explained that, right? You can't know that, right? It moves in the direction of the text. Boy, these people are sharp, Ari. Where do you get them? They really look. This is better than Vassar. I'm coming to Orange County. Is there a position open? Um, 22 years of Vassar. Somebody, does a woman have a question? Let's get a question from a woman. Yes, you are. Hello, what's your name? Suzanne Malman. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Um, since in medieval uh, Christian art, yes. the uh, largest figure was, the, the most important was the largest figure before they have perspective and so forth. Is that, do you think that's what's happening? You know, this is a great question. Where did, where, did, where did I get to get a Jewish audience of, uh, many people who are in some in medieval Christian art, it's obvious. Though, you're a real, did you study medieval Christian art? How do you know that no, stuff? No, I just, I love art. Oh, good. Okay, that's the best kind, because then you're not prejudiced <laughs> by your study. So, thank you. Excellent question. Yeah, I think in the case, for instance, of Sipporah on the donkey, which we'll discuss in another talk, um, she's the highest up. Centrality, size. This, this, these manuscripts have an attempt at um, isometrics. They're not, is it iso or isometrics is muscle flexing. This is, this is something else. Um, uh, 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 what is it, anybody an architect? What is that? It's not actually perspective, but it's iso something. No? Okay, so you're, so you're, so you're art geniuses, but not, you're not architecture geniuses. Okay. It's a primitive form of perspective, but there is recession. Things go back in the distance, you have, right? And, and, and it, size, Unless, in some cases, matters. Um, size in this case matters less than position. But you're on the right track. That there's, There have to be visual clues. See, let me just tell you something. You guys, the three of you, four of you, right? You just made more relevant observations about this stuff than scholars in the past hundred years looking at it. Be, seriously. Because you looked at it. Right? You used your eyes. That's all you need is good eyes and an open heart. Anybody else? Male, female, both, either? Yes, <laughs> sir. Uh, Norm Rosen? Yes, hi, Norm. You talked about art as being commentary itself. Right. So in depicting the many women that you talked about, 
uh, is the commentary to put women back into the story that weren't there to begin with in the original story? Very, very interesting. Look, the Gemara in Sota says, what does it say, Agi? My wife is a Talmudist, so I, I, I feel bad. You know, you don't quote things in front of, in front of your teacher, you know, and so I, so, Mipne, Bishus, because of the merit of righteous women, right? Our ancestors were um, were 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 uh, redeemed from Egypt, right? So it's not that the women weren't in the picture; they always were in the picture textually. It's a textually, right? But they were not necessarily in the picture artistically. And this dude or dudette, whoever, whoever, you know, commissioned the manuscript, definitely wants to put them in for reasons. I, you know, I wouldn't call them feminist reasons, but I would call them women-friendly reasons. I mean, there was certainly somebody with money was interested in women, and so they get put in. But they are, rest assured, they're in the text. By the way, I know the name, and you do too, of the woman who for whom the manuscript was commissioned, or who commissioned the manuscript. What's her name? Tell me. Rachel. Rachel. Why? Rose, yeah, go ahead. Well, she, there's a lot of Rachel. There's more Rachels than necessary. How many Rachels do you need? At Vassar, every girl, every Jewish girl is named Sarah Rachel, right? So it's good to have occasionally, I don't know, a, um, uh, a, a, um, uh, a Yael maybe, you know. It's, it's good, right? You know? so, so, um, so, you know, but yeah, there's too many Rachels here, first of all. Second of all, there's this Rachel that never appears, Rachel Batshutelach, dropping her baby into the brick mold. Also, I did a little research, in 1602, when that extra title page was added, the manuscript was, writ was given by Rosa Galico. So Rosa, what would you think the Hebrew equivalent would be? The, uh, right, Varda or Shoshana, right? Right, some flower name. But in 1302 in Spain, every Rosa was a Rachel. And I think that the original woman who commissioned, or for whom the manuscript was commissioned, was named Rachel, and this woman was her great-great-great-grandchild, keeping the name passed down, and felt this very strong affection for this character. So, but who knows? I'm just I'm making all this stuff up. Yes. <laughs> I get you. you know, I've seen pictures of them working on illuminated manuscripts. Um, they show them being made in specialized studios. Oh, yes. And you always see, measurement is very expensive, and it's always like groups of men working on it. I wonder if they had women doing it. And well, I don't. Jews could not work in the studios. Jews were not allowed to be. Mem thank you. Excellent question. Members of guilds, because to be member of a guild, you have to be Christian under the patronage of a particular saint. But there's no reason after 1400, when manuscript production comes out of the monasteries and you know into the city. So there's a shop next to the cathedral that says has a shingle out. It says manuscripts for sale, right? And anybody Jew. Christian Muslim could walk into the shop and say, you know, I saw my neighbor has a, uh, has a book of hours. I'd like, we have a prayer book also. I'd like you to illuminate it in that style. So one, you could buy it from a non-Jew. Secondly, you could go in there and say, you know, guys, I can't belong to the guild, but I'm a very rich Jew. I have a lot of gold to give you. Why don't you teach me how to illuminate? Teach my daughter. Teach my son. Right? We don't know, but that's a distinct possibility. You can't say that it was impossible. People for years said it was impossible for Jews to learn illumination because what's impossible? Little money greases the wheels. You know, it's always, you know that. Then is now. Nothing changes. Um, uh, yes, go ahead. Yes. Hi. Well, Mark, we've had the pleasure of listening to you and Shalom this past year, and you both specialize in the 
Jewish yeah. Yes. Excellent question. Excellent question. So, in that first generation of people who thought that Jewish art was literal, right, uh, should literally illustrate text, there were scholars in Germany, mostly and in Central Europe, um, Miller and Schlosser and, um, and David Kaufman, who were mostly astounded by the fact that they had discovered these manuscripts in private hands. And, and other works of art and synagogue interiors. And they were like, there's Jewish art. This is so cool. The second commandment prohibits it. How can it have been? Right? So they asked those questions. And they said, well, it must be literal illustration. <coughs> then there was a second generation with the rise of the state of Israel. Um, Jews became, I would say, more savvy about linking text and art. And rather than thinking about things as... Um, as uh, literal, they thought of them as being midrashic. And so Mordechai Narkis in Jerusalem and his son Bitsalo Narkis in Jerusalem and uh, um, uh, 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 what was his name, Feuchtwanger and some others of the, what we would call the Israeli school began this process at the center of Jewish art in Jerusalem uh, to really start looking at these manuscripts um, as distinctively Jewish. They wanted to admit them to the canon of general art so that you would theoretically walk into a museum and see Christian art and Jewish art together and you could explain one against the other. They talked about motifs that were borrowed. They talked about antique things that had been changed and come into Jewish art. But mostly they talked about Midrash. This comes from this Midrash and that comes from that Midrash. And they did thematic studies like the Maccabees in Jewish art throughout the ages. This is somewhat, that's Shalom's you know, generation. He was a student of Narkis. Um, in this generation, there are um, basically, there's a sort of old school, which is Shalom and Shalom Sabar, uh, and and some of his students who are still doing this sort of midrashic thing and, and themes, like you know, uh, the, this lecture wouldn't have happened, right? It would have been something like Jewish women in art, and we'd see a picture of a Jewish woman from 1500 and one from 1600, and you know, we might discuss how they changed. Um, at the present, um, what I do is sort of like living in the penthouse apartment of a one-story building. <laughs> in that um, it's kind of me and my students who are you, because I don't have graduate students, because I teach in an undergraduate institution. You understand what that means? I don't get to pass this on to anybody, right? And I rarely get to teach it. I teach mostly medieval Christianity and, and, uh, and medieval Christian art, right? So, um, so, you know, there's me and my students who don't exist. And there's an Israeli school, um, Katrin Kajman Apple and Sarit Shalev Eni and some others in Israel. The Israeli school is very interested in history. They hate what I do because they say, well, prove it. That's how they say it. Prove it. Right? Prove it. Right? So, so they say, they, for instance, look at what I just presented. And they say, well, what you need to have in your book is you should have an entire chapter. Hi. You should, have an entire, uh, you should have an entire chapter about Jews in Barcelona in 1320, and you should show the status of women, and you should have 60 pages on this, and then you can say what you say. I said, look, I have all that stuff in my footnotes because I'm not a historian. There are greater historians who have come before me and written all that stuff, and so I footnote their work, and I get to the meat of what I'm doing. But let me ask you a question, I say to the Israeli scholars. I say, let's say that I did all the research, which I have, and I found that there was no Jewish 
woman in Barcelona in 1320 who was wealthy enough or interested enough and no Jewish husband who loved his wife enough to commission such a manuscript for her. Let's say I could prove that, which I can't and which I don't believe, but let's say I had that historical evidence. What would stop one special, unique, different, different, think different, right? We're near Cupertino, I guess, someplace, right? No, it's up there, right? right? Think different. One special, unique, different Jewish woman or Jewish husband from having this manuscript created for the circumstances I described. Nothing. Nothing. You see, so history is great, but you can't apply quote-unquote history like a veneer, like a Potemkin village, and say, look, I have 60 pages of history. This is real history. Because you know what? We don't know. We don't know the circumstances of this manuscript. All we have to go on is the internal evidence. So that's today where we are. We have the Israeli school that's very into history, and when they, they, what they love, what they love is when they have a manuscript that the artist is known. Because they can say, this is, an, uh, this is a manuscript that was created by Yoel ben Shimon, and he lived in Germany in the north in 1478, but in 1479, he moved to Italy, and we can see there's a change in his style. And you know, folk, that stuff puts me to sleep. <laughs> okay, it's great, it's wonderful, right? And they love having names and places and dates. I, have, I deal with these orphan manuscripts. And I did once approach a, a primary person in the field, in Israel, and I said to her, you know, you published a book on medieval Haggadot. And in 400 pages, medieval Haggadot in Spain, in 400 pages, only four times do you speculate about the meaning, the soul, the heart of these manuscripts. And each time, you know what it says? There's a little footnote, and it says, see Epstein. <laughs> I, said, I said, don't you? An intelligent person who wrote 400 pages on the side, don't you have any ideas about these things? And she said, oh yes, I do. And I said, well, why don't you write them down? And she said, oh no, I couldn't. And I understood. She didn't want to be labeled as speculative. Well, I say to you, get out there and speculate because you know what? She's going to live forever, but I'm not. I'm going to die pretty soon. And before I die, right? right? Before, I mean, 28 uh, days of this, 28 days of this. <laughs> what the hell am I going to say tomorrow night? <laughs> Stick around and see. Before I die, I want to say this stuff. You know what I'm saying? If you, you know, they say, if you see something, say something. That's what I feel about art. If you see something, say something. Don't be scared that people will say you're speculating. Each and every one of you could be as good or as better an art historian than I am. I have nothing on you if you have eyes. Okay. That was the long answer. So. We gotta got finish because Ari is going drinking apparently and frolicking. Oh, one thing you mentioned, um, I guess. Uh, was that? Yeah, I do. I have a question, so please uh, stick around just for a little bit. Um, you mentioned, is it true that. that I don't know you were joking, but um, in the actual, in, uh, gosh, in the, near the Sistine Chapel um, in Rome, yeah. you say Jews had a certain, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you didn't say that to everybody, tell them. Just yell it out. Okay, so, you know, we were talking about, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Good, because this can't be sustained very long. Um, so we were talking about, you may make for others, right? 
Does anybody know? Have you been to the to, to, to the Vatican? Yes. yes. I've never been to Italy. I'm an artist who has never been to Italy. I never go any place unless I'm invited because I'm an indigent, uh, you know, scholar. <laughs> um, so thank you, Ari. It's nice to see you. But I've never been to Italy. My wife promises me for my 50th birthday, but that's 30 years from now. So, I'm, so, so if you go to the Vatican and you buy tchotchkes, I don't think they call tchotchkes there, right? You buy rosaries and you buy little pietas and little Michelangelo's David, you know. Um, those are all the monopoly on the production and sale of those is very old Jewish families in Rome. So it's a profession. Yeah, so I wasn't kidding.